Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics. We are committed to ensuring that the 2015 election will be the last federal election using first-past-the-post. This will be the last election held under the first-past-the-post system. This last election uh, is uh, going to have been the last one in Canada done under the the first-past-the-post system. Can you promise the people of Canada right now that this is, that was, the last first-past-the-post election? Well, we committed to bringing together a committee to study the options available. I'm not privy to the conversations that are happening within that committee. They're in camera, they're an independent body, and okay, so we're it's working not a guarantee. on it. It's not a guarantee. We're working very hard and we're committed to ensuring that that is the case. Uh, We've made this decision that it's not uh, in the interest of Canadians to change the electoral system, and I look forward to working on the other items in my mandate letter. Today, is our electoral system broken or are we? We're finally going to talk about this. And a bill that would let border guards search all your devices under the legal threshold of if they feel like it? Joining me this week from St. John's, Drew Brown, editor-in-chief of The Independent, and a long overdue return to the backbench. Welcome back. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Uh, Coming back for her second appearance on the show, Raisa Patel, national politics reporter for the Toronto Star, joining us from Ottawa. Happy to be here. Also in Ottawa, also his second appearance, sitting in a library because his house is being renovated, David Mosgrove, columnist at the Washington Post. Hi, I'm bourgeois now. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get into it. Look, we don't talk about electoral reform, no, 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 but we need to. It's something listeners of the show have been asking us to make sense of forever, and I know a lot of people, including some of you sitting here with me on the Zoom, have some hashtag big feelings about it. This conversation comes up again and again over the years, usually after an election. Like the Ontario election, which somehow only happened two weeks-ish ago, we saw abysmal voter turnout, only 43%, the lowest ever. This prompted the question, is it time for a mandatory voting system? I mean, Australia has one, so why can't we? And then there's the question of how the votes are distributed. For example, Doug Ford's Progressive Conservative Party won a healthy majority with only 40% of the popular vote. Meanwhile, the Ontario NDP and Liberals each got 23% of the vote, but while the NDP took home 31 seats, the Liberals only got eight. This is in thanks in large part to our electoral system, called First Past the Post, which rewards the candidate who wins the greatest number of votes in their writing. Some people say that's fine. That's the game and everyone knows it. But the critics of the system say it's creating governments that don't represent the popular will of the people, that it's unfair and unrepresentative. 
Let's just look at the last federal election as an example, too. If we gave out seat counts according to how many total votes a party got, instead of choosing winners by writing, we would currently have a minority conservative government with Prime Minister Aaron O'Toole. The Liberals would be down 50 seats, and we would have 16 or 17 People's Party of Canada MPs and 7 or 8 Green MPs. Now here's the kicker. Back in 2015, when Justin Trudeau's hair was wavier and life was a little less chaotic, the Liberals actually ran on changing the the first-past-the-post system. But that was three elections ago. And that's where I want to start. Riso, what happened to that 2015 promise? Uh, not a lot happened to that promise. You know, it was studied in committee and the Liberals just said there doesn't seem to be a will across the country to get real change on this issue. So they just said, that's all we're going to do on this. We studied it. We looked into it and uh, people made recommendations, you know, on some kind of mixed proportional representation system. Maybe let's have a referendum on it. But no, it looks like we're not going in that direction Interestingly, Trudeau did discuss this last week. He had a town hall with the Chilean president and a bunch of students uh, in Ottawa. And he was asked by one of the students there, you know, what the heck ever happened to that? Are you ever going to fulfill that promise? And he flat out just said, Uh, no, I don't believe in proportional representation. I don't think it's a good idea. He was a little bit careful with his language. He said, you know, I did commit to replacing first past the post. I did commit to replacing uh, the the first-past-the-post system. He said that he loved the idea of a ranked ballot. Where you get to pick your first choice, you know, pick the red guy first and then the orange girl second and the green person third, and then you never get the blue person if that's the way you choose to vote. Um, So you don't have to worry about who might get elected if you vote for your preferred choice. He kind of brought the NDP into it as well. You know, he said he would still love to replace our system with a ranked ballot. And it's something that he would do tomorrow. But if the the NDP asked me to do it, I would do it. But they don't want to do it, so I'm not doing it. So what do we make of that? Do we agree that it's not possible to put in a new system, Drew? I mean, real electoral reform in terms of, like, changing the way people are elected. Ranked ballot might be a little bit easier, but, like, to bring something like PR or any of the other number systems, like that would involve like a level of constitutional megapolitics that I don't think Canadians have any appetite for in the sense that every time we've tried to do it since the original constitutional negotiations in the early 1980s has been disastrous and nearly destroyed the country. Every time it's gone to like a ballot in a province it seems to be unsuccessful because it's kind of unclear and really complicated how the voting systems work and and what is being asked for. So I think like Trudeau is right in the sense that, yeah, it probably would be really difficult to do and it's not clear that there's an appetite for it. But on the other hand, that's kind of a cop-out because he said he would do it and lots of us at least want to look into it because, yeah, this is kind of a bullshit system, which is how it was designed initially. Because, yeah, democracy was not on the forefront of the uh, Canadian founders' uh, priority list in the (laughs) 1860s, let's say. It sounds like politics, first of all, which is annoying, and I'm sure Moscarp will have thoughts. But before we go to him, Drew, can you break down what proportional representation is for us and why it might be better? Yeah, um, I will say this with the caveat that I'm not a PR guy. Um, I'm actually a MMP guy. Um, one of many reasons why electoral will never happen, because we'll just keep fighting to the death over really obscure uh, factional problems. But PR is basically like 
the the number of seats that go into parliament would be based on like the actual percentage of like votes cast for each given party, which wouldn't necessarily be tied to like like a geographical sort of like direct voting for your representative. Like it would be more so like you cast votes, they break down like how many parties got what votes where, and then they sort of like have a list of candidates that would be like appointed on that basis. I think this is my rough recollection of how PR works. Mosgrove, jump in here. What are the merits of uh, a different electoral system? And can we consider it, unlike what Trudeau said? Well, we can consider it. I don't think uh, we're going to do it anytime. I mean, Drew's right. It's been tried provincially in British Columbia three times now in recent memory. It's been tried in Ontario. Uh, It was sort of tried in Prince Edward Island. It was promised in Quebec. Those were all uh, PR promises. It was some version was promised federally. Uh, Trudeau always wanted ranked ballots because he thinks it moderates parties. It certainly would be good for the Liberals. So, I mean, it could happen, but I don't think it will anytime soon. But if it does happen, I think it's going to happen provincially. Uh, before it happens nationally. David, can you tell us what ranked ballots are? Well, so ranked ballots is simply exactly what it sounds like. You rank your ballot, one, two, three, four, your top, you know, X candidates. What Justin Trudeau wants is a system that's known as alternative vote, which means that you elect a single member in a single district, not proportionally, by ranking your ballot. And if someone doesn't get 50% on the first round, then they drop the lowest performer and that person's second, third, fourth, fifth preferences get reallocated. And you keep going through these rounds of reallocation, dropping a lowest performer until somebody gets 50% plus one. So a rank balance is just a mechanism for ranking your choices, but it can be used in PR and it can be used as side of PR as well. On the, the question of, of what the virtues are, uh, PR supporters would tell you it's fairness, that every vote should have more or less an equal opportunity to contribute to a result so that you don't get what they call wasted votes. Now we can debate about wasted, but it effectively means that a bunch of votes are cast that will never elect anybody. In PR, the probability that your vote returns a member is very, very high. And what Drew was talking about was a sort of list PR system. He says he supports MMP. That happens to be the one I support too. MMP has the virtue of combining a system into two, that you have a local member and you have a list or party member that gives the proportional bit, which means that you keep your local constituent, but you also get a sort of proportional top up to make sure that the number of people who support a party is reflected in the legislature. It's what Germany uses, what New Zealand uses. It works quite well. So those values reflect what at least we're told Canadians like, which is having you know fairness in our electoral system, getting contribute to, to democracy, but also having a local representative. We're told that's important. We're told that people like that. Well, you get that in MMP. And, and so you get that double uh, virtue. And the final thing is, you know, it forces parties, at least ostensibly, to work together in the legislature because you don't have these behemoth majority governments that win 100% of the power with 39% of a 45% turnout or whatever it is. Uh, they've got to cooperate with other parties, which means that the political agenda, the policy agenda, starts looking a little bit different because you can't just railroad through whatever you want as a single party. And so that's sort of the case for PR. But again, it seems like a bit of a long shot. My personal preference for this is because like, I live in a part of the country that has basically zero regional representation. And the great fear here is that if we were to switch to like pure PR, well, then like Newfoundland and Labrador becomes even more marginalized. Um, and this is a bit of a concern for a number of uh, small provinces outside the uh, core of central Canada, let's say. In the power fantasy where I've been given total control to like redesign the entire Canadian political system, we could also use this as a way to do like Senate reform too. 
like maybe we put the party list people in the Senate or that's where the geographical representation goes. I have no idea. I haven't thought that that far ahead. You know, there are people who defend the current electoral system that we have, the first past the post, who say that it's more likely to create stable majority governments rather than fractured governments that can't get things done. Um, open question to all of you. Um, what do you what do we make of that argument? It's inaccurate. <laughs> it's not necessarily the case. Years ago, I wrote about electoral reform for broadband when we were doing this whole thing in 2016 or whatever it was. And I went through the races and said, okay, how long does the government last in this country? You know, PR versus first past the post, how long would they last in PR? And the fact is that governments in this country don't you know, last particularly long on average. We end up having quite a few minorities and unstable periods, right? So think about the Harper years, think about the current years, right? These are unstable periods. There are plenty of minorities prior to these as well. So the average time in between elections in Canada between 1945 and when I wrote the Broadbent Report was 3.2 years. In Germany, it was 3.56. In Ireland, it was 3.63. In Israel, it was 3.35. Italy was 3.9. Sweden was 3.4. Denmark was 2.7 and 3.25 for Spain. Those are all PR countries. So what does that tell you? <laughs> it's pretty much the same. It's not the, the system. It's the political culture and the system, how these things interact. And so we have every reason to believe that if we had PR in this country, we would, in fact, have fairly stable governments. So I wouldn't say that changes. I also wouldn't say that first past the post is inherently unstable as a, as a corollary. It's not. It does produce fairly stable governments. But so would PR, probably. So it's a moot point. What first past the post does produce, though, is what we call policy lurch. A majority government has all the power. They come in, they do a bunch of stuff. The next majority government comes in, they're on the other party. They don't like what the last government does, so they undo all the stuff the last government does. So what you end up, get is, what you end up getting is instability by way of policy lurch, which is its own sort of form of nefarious instability. So the argument that you know first past the post is good because it produces stable majorities is simply incorrect. Marisa, jump in. I mean, this notion that first past the post, you know, equals a majority government, which then equals things getting done. I mean, that assumes that people care about having a majority. And what we're seeing in this country now is a lot of fractures, a lot of divisiveness. You know, if we go back to the people taking part in the convoy and, and those related movements in this country, those are A, people who don't understand how politics works, frankly, um, or people who dislike the entire political system and want to burn it all down. And then as for Canadians who are not part of those movements, you know, what if they're just tired? What if they're just over it? They see politicians at each other's throats instead of doing their jobs. Of course, they're checked out. You know, after the, the federal election in 2021, I think StatsKen found that the majority of people who chose not to vote did so because real life got in the way and, and they were just busy. So I feel like we need to be addressing this, you know, situation of, of apathy or this lack of caring in this country before we start looking at electoral reform more broadly and trying to, to redo the whole system. Well, it's kind of like a chicken and egg question in my head, right? Like if we fix the electoral system, will people come? Or will people just come if we fix other issues. Like, you know, I, I guess my concern is, is the system holding us back from being active players in our democracy? Drew? Yeah, I mean, I think 
is certainly the problem of like why people don't vote and why is Canadian political culture currently a little bit broken. It's an overdetermined problem, right? There are a number of factors that have worked together to create it. But yeah, I think the electoral system as it currently exists definitely disincentivizes people from participating, um, both because of the sort of phenomenon of like wasted votes and also because the particular like just like the, the culture that's kind of like grown up ar- around it. Like it produces a certain kind of like politicking, right? Like you're just trying to get like the bare minimum, like plurality of votes in a given district. So it's like micro-targeting, like very specific, like swing voters will just put you over like the bare minimum edge, right? Which means like you get all this kind of like weird triangulation um, of like meaningless stuff that most of us don't actually care about. And also most of us like just don't think it will matter either way if we vote, right? Like for a long time, I heard from people who were sort of invested in the system as it currently is, that like low voter turnout just meant that people had like high levels of institutional trust to just like let things work out however they would, right? Which like I thought was kind of weird when I heard in 2013 and the year of our Lord 2022, it's patently insane. (laughs) Like it's clear that like high levels of institutional trust are not what's driving political activity here. Um, I guess like all this to say, I I do think like reworking the system so that like it makes it feel like people actually have some kind of like valuable say and that parties are actually trying to like advocate for like real ideas and real policy interests versus just like the lowest common possible denominator in like the two ridings where the numbers look like they could flip. Yeah, I think that would probably fix a number of the current problems with the electoral system. And politics generally in this country. <laughs> I know a bunch of examples have come up in our conversation. I think, Drew, you mentioned Germany. Um, Moscrop, you mentioned a couple too. I know New Zealand and, and Bolivia have also implemented alternatives to the first past the post system. Are there lessons learned from around the world about how to improve voter engagement in elections that we can maybe bring into Canadian society, David? I don't. Yes and no. I mean, I you know, Drew's point, I think, is important that, you know, it's an overdetermined problem. There's not going to be any single solution to it. One way is to force it. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, you mentioned mandatory voting. I'm sort of of a mixed opinion about mandatory voting. I've supported it in the past until very re- recently as well. I still do just barely, not because of the voter side, but actually because of the party side. You know, Andrew Coyne makes this argument, I think, fairly cogently, that the thing that mandatory voting does is it forces the parties to try to appeal to more voters because they can't do what Drew was talking about, which is sort of micro-targeting of particular ridings where they say, we don't really need a lot of people to turn out. We just need these people in these ridings to turn out. Mm -hmm. So let's just focus all our attention on them. Let's not build a more inclusive party. Let's not build a grassroots party. Let's not try to mobilize the population at large. Let's just get these people. Mandatory voting changes that. It forces parties to go after everyone. And in theory, um, sort of forces parties to set a policy agenda that's reflective of what people want. Incidentally, that's sort of what we talk about when we talk about the virtues of PR, mm-hmm. which I don't, now PR will perhaps incl- increase the turnout rates. I don't think it will drastically increase them, but it could help produce a better political culture that would induce more people to vote. But I think ultimately the key thing that we've got to do if we want to mobilize people to get them to the ballot box is to get parties to take it seriously. Parties are going to be the number one vector for getting people to turn out absent legislation. So we've got to get parties trying to get everybody. But in the current system, there's no incentive to do that. We just need to get their people. Now, and the final thing I would say is 
uh, you know, this is what I've argued for in my book. And whenever I'm yapping about something on the internet, it's usually this, you know, a more inclusive democracy uh, means that people have a chance to, to show up and have a say that actually produces some kind of change. That means participatory democracy, things like citizens assemblies, things like participatory budgeting exercises, things that say to people, okay, we're actually going to come and listen to you. We don't just want to hear from you once every four years for your vote. We want you to turn out. We want you to produce something for us. Let's do this together. And that has to include resource egalitarianism and economic democracy. People are, as raised it, busy. They're checked out. They're trying to deal with their lives. Uh, How do we help them? We make sure that there's basic equalities, that everyone can be a citizen, because if you have a theoretical right to something, which we do for political citizenship, but you can't exercise it because you don't have the resources to do it, then you don't have that right. Mm -hmm. So we need to give people the economic resources to ensure that they can be citizens. And then we find that ultimately the political and economic questions actually hang together, even though in this country we typically like to separate them and pretend we're classless which Marx would have liked, but in a sort of different way. <laughs> um, I say this on the show a lot, like democracy doesn't start and end on election day. And it concerns me that this election, I mean, I'm in Ontario, this election, I have to drag my family members to the ballot and and, and force them to vote, to participate. They didn't like anyone. Uh, they weren't inspired by anyone. They didn't think anyone could sort of you know, deliver on anything that they wanted to see in in their society, in their neighborhood, in their community. And I also know so many people who didn't vote. And maybe this is a cynical argument, but I wonder if it's okay that voter turnout has been declining federally since the 90s and we got the lowest voter turnout in Ontario in years because it's a signal to the system that it's failing the people and they got to get their shit together and do better. They need to provide better candidates and and, and better policies and, and so forth. Yeah. Like the big sort of elf in the room on the like, why is voter turnout so low is that people don't vote because they don't feel like there's anything to fucking vote for. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of the time, that was the case in the Ontario election. That was sort of the case in the last federal election. That was like, that was the case in the last several provincial elections in my province. And I imagine it's kind of across the board. The system is kind of in crisis and we don't really have a way to respond to it meaningfully. And the parties aren't really incentivized to do it because of the way things are set up. Marisa, I know you you started this conversation by saying that, you know, Ottawa doesn't really care about this. Uh, the Parliament Hill and, and the Liberal Party in power right now has has shown that they don't care about this anymore. Like, does that worry you that the place where the system is created and run from doesn't care about it? It does worry me. I mean, people, you know, when Trudeau ran on that promise that this is going to be the last election under first past the post, he was saying something that might have benefited him. And now he's realized it it doesn't and has sort of changed his tack accordingly. So calculated. I hate this. (laughs) So that's what we've seen. And that's probably what we'll continue to see in that see in that sucks to an extent. But there's also this idea that I've been thinking of as, you know, accessibility as a form of electoral reform. And that's maybe something that we can have movement on, you know, increasing accessibility to younger voters, um, voters who don't speak French or English, indigenous voters, voters with illnesses and disabilities. You know, if we can get these more disenfranchised people back into the system, maybe that will be a bigger impetus for change. I'll just quickly use, you know, myself as an example, a couple of weeks ago for the Ontario election, I wound up getting COVID that week. And I had missed the deadline for mail-in voting because I wasn't planning on getting COVID as is the case for many of us. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And initially I just assumed, well, I, I'm shut out of luck. I can't vote because I can't leave my apartment. So what am I supposed to do? And I called Elections Ontario and they said, you're shut out of luck. You can't vote. And I was like, okay, let's talk about this for a second. Like what, what are the options for someone like me in my situation? And in the end, you know, they were able to actually come to my apartment and I voted out of my living room and it was great and exciting. And I tweeted about that experience and I got so many responses from people who said, I was in your boat. I just assumed I couldn't vote, so I didn't vote. Or I didn't know that there was curbside voting or at-home voting. A lot of, you know, young people reached out to me. A lot of people with disabilities and illnesses reached out to me and said, I've never voted in an election because I didn't know that these options existed to me. And so maybe that's a place where we can start. If the politicians aren't going to start changing the system at a wider scale, maybe we can go back to the grassroots and see what we can figure out there. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Drew? Uh, there should be a law where when it's like nights out in the good months of the year, so roughly May to October, uh, <laughs> it should only be a 10 hour work week and it should be distributed according to like the relative niceness of the forecast. Here, 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 here. Can I bang yeah. on my desk? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I imagine this will get unanimous support. But yeah, I think it's really important. Not a point of order, but the backbench endorses this motion and votes on this uh, enthusiastically. Excellent. I'm Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of and order, Raisa? My point of order is that I'm a little freaked out about COVID amnesia because I'm kind of talking about this crisis at Pearson and a couple other airports and how everything sucks there. You know, there's staffing shortages, the Arrive Can app, the, the mandatory random testing, which was just paused, possibly vaccine mandates. But I'm kind of freaking out over how quickly we've gone from, you know, COVID is here, shut it all down to COVID, never heard of her. I mean, it's still, <laughs> it's still real. People are still getting it. People are still dying of it. It's like everyone forgot that the last two years were like a slice of wine pizza that was lit on fire and dumped in the Rio Canal. <laughs> mm -hmm. And now it just seems like politically everyone is moving towards canceling everything all at the same time. And I'm very alarmed. Um, not a point of order, but I share your alarm and I will not be able to get an image of a you know, Hawaiian pizza on fire in the Rideau Canal out of my head for the rest of the day. I've seen it with my own eyes, so it's, it's a trademark. <laughs> point of order? What is your point of order, David Mosgrove? Who are the baddies in Top Gun Maverick? <laughs> you know, I... Okay, wait, I have to say no spoilers because I haven't watched no, it. I, no, no, I'm not a monster, <laughs> but there are baddies in it. That shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. There, there are baddies. But it's ambiguous who the baddies are, and they say that they're in violation of a NATO treaty on nuclear development. Don't really know what that is. But it's very unclear who they are. And you never find out. That is a spoiler, but not a real one. And it sits with you, you know? And I sort of miss the old days where lazy Hollywood tropes that created and demonized a country <laughs> meant that we didn't have to think. And now we have to think it's harder now to simply demonize an entire nation that we know nothing about. Not a point of order, but maybe Top Gun is like real life where you don't actually know who the bad guys are, like obviously, but then they ruin your life anyways. Mm -hmm. Either way, thank you for bringing Tom Cruise onto the show. Love him. You're welcome. Yeah, he's probably terrible, I think. But um, <laughs> what, what a great film. 
beloved by critics and audiences alike, which doesn't happen a lot anymore. Unites my father and me. Let's talk about privacy. The thing we all want, but none of us really have. JK, JK. Or am I really kidding? There's a bill that's making its way through the Senate, Bill S-7, which would amend the Customs Act and allow Border Services officers to search our devices, including phones and laptops, based on, quote, reasonable general concern. Now, according to reporting from the National Post, this legislation was created in response to a 2020 judgment by the Alberta Court of Appeal, which ruled that any examination of personal digital devices would be unconstitutional because the Customs Act currently contains no limits on when, why, or how an agent might search a device. However, When the court realized that banning searches outright could cause some very real national security issues, the court decided to suspend its decision for a year to give the federal government time to amend the Customs Act and introduce limitations. That's how we got Bill S-7. Now, there's a lot of opposition to this bill already. Alberta Senator Paul Simons, a former journalist, has come out strongly against the bill and the phrase reasonable general concern in particular. As she wrote in the line, quote, it's an absolutely novel legal threshold. That phrase, be it in English or French, doesn't appear anywhere else in Canadian criminal or civil law. It's not a standard borrowed from any other country. It's a brand new legal test to authorize an invasive search of your most private personal records and correspondence. End quote. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association agrees with Senator Simons, saying, quote, the threshold of reasonable general concern is a sniff test, not a standard. Raisa, what the F is happening? That's a great question. It all really does hinge on that phrase, reasonable general concern. I spoke to Senator Simons about this on Friday, and I asked her, and maybe this was a stupid question because maybe I just don't understand how legislation works. But I said, where the heck did that phrase come from? Who wrote those words? Who put those three words together? And she had no idea. You know, she said she has no idea where that phraseology comes from. It, it's a totally unique creation in the bill where no precedent or jurisprudence for it existed before. And it just kind of created these questions for me of, you know, who are the people who are penning and crafting these bills and throwing in these words that have meanings and have severe consequences. And now we suddenly have this very loosey-goosey, wishy-washy phrase that could mean that any border officer could rifle through our personal things if they have a feeling, if they just feel like it, if the wind is a little different that day. And that is terrifying. I have a procedural question before we unpack this even more. I've never heard of a bill be introduced in Senate before. Is that normal? Can that happen? Can someone walk us through sort of the process there? Maybe someone who wrote the book Too Dumb for Democracy? Was that Drew or is that me? Oh, it's me. <laughs> I don't think it was you, I think. That was me, I think. Oh, it was, uh, yeah, government bills uh, can and do start in the Senate. Uh, there's a particularly high number of government bills in the Senate right now that have started in the Senate from this government. There's something, there's something weird going on. What they're saying is that, well, this is how we manage parliamentary time. It's more efficient so we get more bills passed. The, the liberals have been sort of 
notorious for not passing a great number of bills during their time in government. Yet another government failure. Well, I mean, that's not necessarily a judgment of whether or not they're doing well, but it's a note that they don't pass a ton of bills. So you can, you know, start the bill in the Senate and have your work in the House and blah, blah, blah. The pushback on that is, well, you know, opponents worry that they're doing that because they think it'll be easier to get things done and then rush it through the House. So there's the two perspectives. So yeah, it's it's perfectly reasonable and normal to have government bills uh, start in the Senate. The one note is that the Senate post-reform, in theory, makes it a little bit more challenging to manage all that because it's not like the old days where the senators were in caucus with the liberals and they were all in lockstep. The Senate post-Trudeau reforms uh, have been more inclined to add amendments to bills, to stall bills, to even threaten to kill bills. So um, that's a bit of an interesting case study in, in parliamentary evolution in this country. But yeah, there's nothing wrong with it or abnormal. Well, thank you for that Democracy 101 lesson. Now tell me what you think about this bill. So there's a problem in governments in, in Canada. It's not a new problem. The Trudeau government's particularly bad at it, that they'll pass these bills or they'll introduce these bills that have sweeping language in it and then sort of say, don't worry, we'll figure it out later in practice and in regulations at the agency level. And the pushback from parliamentarians and from senators and, and others has been, actually, we'd like to know the details now, please. We don't want to simply defer to agencies ex post facto, because that's how you get a lot of constitutional violations and a lot of dodgy practice. And so this seems to me like another example of the government saying, just trust us. They do this with the CRTC all the time, too. Like, no, just trust us. We'll pass the bill. It's general. It's vague. But don't worry. We won't push the limits. We won't violate anyone's rights. What we find time and time again is, of course, they end up pushing the limits and violating people's rights because they don't know how this is going to work. They don't know how someone's going to apply this at the level of a border officer, right? We simply have no idea. So uh, I suspect that it's either going to be amended or at some point it's going to be found to be unconstitutional. It's not going to meet that threshold as per the court ruling. And so it's, it's a disaster of a bill because of that. And it should be uh, at least amended to be far more clear about the circumstances under which it's, it operates, because we shouldn't be giving the government the benefit of the doubt when it comes to privacy. Drew, there's this tension, right, in this bill between privacy and national security issues. That's how it's being framed, this conversation. Like, what's a good way to navigate that? Yeah, that's. I guess that's the million-dollar question here, and I guess that's what they're trying to figure out in the Senate currently. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, like, the, the Alberta court ruling was kind of important because, yes, I think to just sort of bracket out, like, digital devices as not a thing covered by any of the legislation is not necessarily super helpful for border security purposes. So, like, that needs to be defined, like, clearly. So we can actually navigate that fine line between privacy and security concerns. But like, obviously, at the same time, it is kind of funny, air quote funny, that like (laughs) the response to like an Alberta Court of Appeal ruling that like, hey, this act is unconstitutional because it gives too much sweeping power to border agents has been responded to with an act that will basically allow border cops to do a vibe check on people they don't (laughs) like and read all your fucking shit if they don't like it. So obviously, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I agree, I agree with David. Like, I think it, my immediate reading is like, well, if they do pass this without major amendments, it's just going to immediately be ruled unconstitutional. 
the first time a border cop does a vibe check and doesn't like somebody, which seems like immediately. So yeah, I think this uh, I think this bill is kind of a, a hot mess, and uh, there is a complicated and nuanced discussion to be had about like how do you find the line between liberty and security, but this very clearly is not it. And yeah, it's a bit of a what the fuck moment. Like how is this <laughs> anyway? Like it's it's one of these like how did this even come to the table? It honestly it feels like it came out of nowhere. It's really rough first draft, right? Like where the <laughs> fuck is anyway. So all this to say, I think it's garbage, and hopefully they'll fix it before, you know, I wear a free Newfoundland shirt across the border and get fucking detained, <laughs> right? And they're reading all my group DMs, and suddenly there's a big fucking problem. Listen, I mean, as someone who's had a lot of vibe checks at airport security, they're not fun, so I'm not looking forward <laughs> to this kind of bill. Um, Risa, is there a way to fix it? Like, are, are, are there people on the Hill or, or people you've spoken to who have alternative suggestions for this kind of route? I think what David said is right on the money here in that when we look at, you know, big tech and internet regulation or these bills that have a lot to do with technology, like these are all like scary words to politicians because they really frankly don't understand these concepts very well. <laughs> They, with all of this legislation, they're bringing in this like very vague language and they're like, we're going to sort our shit out later. We're seeing that right now with C11 and will it or will it not regulate user generated content? Well, the possibility exists in the bill and then politicians say, well, can you just fix the bill so it doesn't say that? And they say, no, like, you know, we're going to deal with it in policy directives later on and the CRTC, which will solve all our problems, will execute this perfectly and wonderfully and that is probably not what's going to happen. And so a part of me just kind of thinks like we need to just take all of our lawmakers and throw them into like technology <laughs> school or something because we're going to see these debates and these issues just get more and more complicated in the next 10 years. You know, you can't regulate the internet, you would a broadcaster. And that's what we're seeing in C11. And in this bill, you can't rifle through a smartphone that the way you would a suitcase. It's not the same thing. So... I think in terms of solutions, we just maybe need smarter people working on them. When we all mandate them to go to technology school, can we feed them Hawaiian pizza that's on fire? Absolutely. 100%. <laughs> Moscow, final thoughts. Well, I just want to point out that Paula Simons is a national treasure. Here, here. You know, I'm a sort of very tepid uh, fair weather support of the Senate in very particular ways because the Senate is actually one of the few checks and balances we have on the government, uh, especially when we have good senators, especially post-reform. And, and Paula Simons is one of the examples of how the Senate can and ought to work. Someone who uh, is very smart, knows these files, stands up for, for rights that, that may not otherwise be defended in parliament, and is very good at reaching out to and communicating to the public. I mean, she was a journalist, I'm not surprised, and is accessible and is a human. And it's a great example of how that actually matters. And every so often, the Senate does something good and important. It does it in studies. It did on, uh, on I think, cannabis and assisted dying, for instance. Um, it defeated uh, Mulroney's abortion bill back in the um, late 80s or the early 90s when it, when it was that. I think it was the early 90s. Uh, defeated it on a tie. And it may very well stand up and do the right thing on S7 right now uh, when uh, the House might be less inclined to do so or less able to do so. It's hard to say. It's certainly setting the agenda to make sure that we're caring about privacy. So that's a big deal. 
And uh, it's worth recognizing the people who are doing that work. And Paula Simons, we trust yes. to protect mm-hmm. our privacy. Yes. We love her so much. No pressure. All right, on that note, let's adjourn. That's The Backbench. Next week, we'll bring you another in-depth conversation about something affecting our lives. Stay tuned for that. Until then, send us your questions, your concerns, your rants. You can email us, backbench at canadaland.com. We're also on Twitter, at BackbenchCast. I'm Fatma Sayed. You can find me on Twitter, at Fatma B. Sayed. You can find my work on The Narwhal. Thank you all for being here. Love having you guys on the show. Um, where can people follow your work, Raisa? You can follow my work at thestar.com or on Twitter at rspatel. Drew, where do people follow your ever-expanding newsroom? Well, uh, you can visit theindependent.ca. As starting today, we actually have a full-time journalist working who isn't me, and that's very exciting. That's where you can read like my actual professional stuff. If you prefer to read my like dumb shit posting, I am on Twitter as uh, Trufinland, which is like the island but my name. And David Moskrob, where can people follow your work? Uh, well, you can still find me at the South Keys Home Depot most days. <laughs> so if you want to have a chat, I'll, I'll be there. So feel free to pop by. If you prefer digital, uh, you can find me at David underscore Mosscrop. And uh, I've got a book uh, that, that uh, you mentioned, Two Dumb for Democracy, third printing, the little book that could, which is available wherever books are sold. This episode was produced by Kevin Sexton and Noor Azurie with additional production by Tristan Capacione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today.